Hi, this is Marlene, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Whether you're watching a video or listening to a podcast, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. Links to videos or MP3 files can be found on MiamiGhostChronicles.com. Go to MarlenePardo.com for information on new book releases. I narrate several podcast series that can be found on major podcast platforms and can also be listened to via Alexa, Sonos, and other home systems. Look for Supernatural Storytime for scary storytelling, Nightshade Diary for classic horror and adventure stories, Stories of the Supernatural for interviews with different guests on the show. If you want to get noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird, you can visit Strange Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com or find us on Blogspot. I want to thank you for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. Hi, everybody. Uh, Today's episode is titled, What Happened to These Cold Cases? And I'm going to make a series of these, revisiting some of these cases Some of them solved, some of them not. And sometimes they're solved under very unusual circumstances. Uh, The first four involved teenage girls killed in the 1980s in the space of 12 months in Alameda County, California. The first girl, her name was Kelly Jean Poppleton, 14, and she was found dead along Kelkerry Road in Sunil. Uh, It's been more than three decades And even now, on the anniversary of her death, investigators with the Alameda County Sheriff's Office go ahead and revisit it, hoping that even after so many years, they're going to get some type of lead in what happened to her. Uh, She attended Conrad Knoll School in Fremont and was last seen alive in the area of Darwin Drive and Fremont Boulevard. On December 2nd, 1983, her body was found badly beaten, strangled, and sexually assaulted along the remote road in Alameda County. And according to media reports, investigators suspected that her death was possibly related to a school drug ring. The sheriff's office said witnesses reported a black Pontiac Trans Am in the area where her body was found, which leads one to believe that maybe there was somebody involved in that drug trafficking that had a similar car. Unfortunately, until this day, her case remains unsolved. Now, within a few months, another young girl, same age, 14, by the name of Tina Feltz, was found dead. She was a freshman at Foothill High School, and she died after suffering 44 stab wounds when she was on her way home from school on the afternoon of April 5th, 1984. This was barely four months after Kelly Jean Poppleton was killed. Her body was found in a drainage ditch adjacent to Interstate Highway 680, east of the high school. Now, the case went cold for over 20 years, but in 2011, authorities announced that they had started an investigation back in 2007, trying to use DNA evidence to link a spot of blood found on Tina's purse which was found hanging from a tree at the homicide scene. And they got a hit. 
the hit belonged to was then a career criminal by the name of Steve Carlson. Uh, by the time he was arrested, he had convictions for drug crimes and a lewd act on a 13-year-old girl. Even though he did commit the crime when he was under the age of 18, he was tried as an adult. Uh, he did receive a conviction of first-degree murder. However, in January of 2017, a three-judge court of appeal panel said the conviction had to be reduced to second-degree murder because prosecutors hadn't proved the element of premeditation and deliberate intent needed for a first-degree murder conviction. Fast forward to 2020. This was six years after his conviction, and he finally confessed to the murder of Tina. So far, even though he had been convicted, he had never admitted to the crime. Um, he gave prison officials permission to share certain letters that he wrote, which were a nine-page, what they call, insight statement written for the state parole commissioners. Uh, there was a letter to Tina's family and one to Tina herself, and her family went ahead and released them to the local newspaper. One of the letters that was written directly to Tina by Carlson read, This letter of my deepest apologies is way overdue. I was living in denial for many years, not being able to believe or take responsibility for brutally murdering you on that day of April 5th, 1984. I want you and your family to know you did absolutely nothing to deserve what I did to you. That's what makes this murder so callous and horrific. During Carlson's trial, a former friend testified that on the day that he murdered Tina, Carlson was bullied and tossed into a dumpster at Foothill High School after confrontation with members of the football team. Carlson claimed he didn't intend to kill Tina, but was intoxicated and angry over the confrontation earlier that day. In one of the letters he wrote, I remember being full of rage at the way all my classmates were laughing at me and the damage my parents' room was in and how my dad was going to whip up on me after they found out the party I threw. Apparently he'd had a party in his house without his parents' permission. Uh, the letter continued. Everything happened so fast. I remember going to the kitchen and I grabbed a butcher knife. I walked across the street into the field at the gully. That's where, at that time, I found Tina Feltz. I don't remember the stabbing motions. I just remember standing over her bloody body holding a bloody knife. And at that time, um, nobody had any idea that it was him. He lived on Lemonwood Way, very close to where uh, she was killed. But there was no connection between them because obviously he just took out his rage on someone that had nothing whatsoever to do with what happened with him. And one has to think, though, how sincere are these letters because he's coming up on parole very soon, in 2023 to be exact. Now, the next case involves a girl by the name of Julie Connell. She was a studious straight-A student, and she attended Arroyo High School in San Leandro. On the afternoon of April 20th, 1984, she was abducted from Kennedy Park in Hayward. Five days later, her body was found in an animal corral near Castro Valley. She'd been raped and her wrist tied with green twine. One of her wrists had been slashed as if the killer wanted to bleed her out. When that didn't work, he cut her throat. The case went cold 
and stay cold for 14 years. Then in 1998, the investigators submitted DNA recovered from Julie's body to the California Data Bank, and they got a hit. The hit was to a man named Robert Rhodes. Rhodes was a sexual predator and serial murderer who was already on California's death row for the kidnapping, torture, rape, and murder of eight-year-old Michael Lyons of Yuba City. Uh, at his trial for the murder of Julie, the prosecutor said, Rhodes silenced the only witness to these atrocities by slitting her throat, not once, not twice, but three times. The jury took an hour to convict him, and he was again sentenced to death. In addition to Lyons and Connell, Rhodes had been convicted of sexually molesting his four-year-old stepdaughter and kidnapping and sexually assaulting yet another victim. She survived only because she jumped out of his truck and escaped. Robert Rhodes is currently on death row at San Quentin. The next case involves a young lady by the name of Wendy Stark. On April 10th, 1982, Wendy stopped at the Hillendale Shopping Center in Rockville, Maryland. She was a former cheerleader and student at the University of Maryland, and she planned to shop at a department store called Zares before she continued to her job as a waitress. She was tall and blonde, just the type of victim Gerald Abernathy was searching for. Five months earlier, Abernathy had escaped from the Prince William County Jail. He'd spent most of his life in prison for numerous sexual assaults and at least one other murder. Abernathy kidnapped Stark at gunpoint. He drove her to a secluded area and raped her. At some point, Stark bolted out of the car and ran toward a house. She made it to the front porch and tried to open the door while Abernathy followed behind her. Once Stark reached the porch, he caught up to her and fired four bullets into her body, and she died a few hours later. The case was a mystery from the beginning, and it went cold. The killer fled, and because it was random, in other words, a stranger-on-stranger stranger attack, it was very difficult to identify the perpetrator. However, in 2007, a cold case detective accidentally found the box containing a cotton swab and hair sample from the case. He submitted the evidence to the lab for testing. And what they found was that it linked the genetic fingerprint through a nationwide database to Abernathy, who had died in 2006, the previous year of lung cancer, at the age of 66 in a North Carolina prison. He'd been serving a life sentence for an unrelated kidnapping and murder since 1994. While Abernathy escaped justice, Wendy's mother said she was pleased to know the name of the killer. I'm glad he's dead, she said. The next case involves not a young girl. This was a 47-year-old woman named Dorothy White. And on July 25th, 1980, she didn't show up for work and she didn't call in sick. And she was known to be very reliable. She had been many years at her job. So one of her co-workers drove over to her home to check on her. There they found her body lying on the kitchen floor. Blood seemed to be everywhere, and she was nude except for her blouse, which had been pulled up above her breast. Investigators found that White had been raped and stabbed repeatedly. According to a court document, 
the fatal injury was a slash wound across her throat, which totally severed the trachea, the right cordoid artery, and the jugular vein. The police techs extracted semen from Dorothy's body. The cops interviewed hundreds of suspects, but the murder remained unsolved for 19 years. But what happened was that between 1980 and 1999, a new technology was introduced into law enforcement using DNA. And in 1988, Virginia had used genetic markers left on the bodies of several murder victims to convict a serial killer named Timothy Spencer. Dorothy's sister-in-law heard about the so-called Southside Strangler and how he was sent to death row with the use of DNA. She contacted the Hampton Police Department and asked them to take another look at the long cold case of Dorothy. Now, by this time, Virginia had created a data bank that contained DNA profiles of all convicted felons in the state. They took the semen from Dorothy's body, tested it, and entered it into the system. And they got a hit that confirmed that William Wilton Morissette had left the DNA. Morissette had been an employee of White's boyfriend and had done yard work for the victim. His DNA was in the data bank because he'd been convicted of an abduction and maiming and burglary. It was believed that he came to Dorothy with the excuse of doing additional yard work uh, as a ruse to get inside her home. Uh, he was convicted of sexual assault and murder and sentenced to death. But then on an appeal in 2011, in order to avoid the uh, possibility of a death sentence, he went ahead and agreed to serve a life without the possibility of parole and all pending uh, appeals would be dropped. Now, the next story uh, occurred in the 1990s. As a matter of fact, it was three nights before Christmas of 1997, and a young uh, Colorado University student by the name of Susanna Chase had a fight with her boyfriend. She left his house and began walking to her apartment in Boulder. However, she never made it. She was abducted, raped, beaten with a baseball bat and left for dead. Semen was recovered from her body and the DNA placed in the National Registry. Ten years went by, but finally they got a cold hit on a serial sex offender named Diego Olmos Acalde. When he was convicted of abducting and raping a woman in Wyoming, his DNA was submitted to the National Data Bank. Olmos Acalde had an extensive arrest record for sexual offenses. In addition to spending seven years in a Wyoming prison, he was suspected of sexual assaults in Colorado and New Jersey. In 2009, almost Acalde was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole. The next case involves an 18-year-old by the name of Lisa Monzo. Lisa was a cheerleader and she disappeared in November of 1984. She was last seen by a group of teenagers as she walked home from school. The teens told police that she first walked through a busy area of town but later veered off towards the overpass. The San Lorenzo High School teen never made it home. Her family became frantic and worried, fearing the worst had happened to Lisa. And police confirmed their fears when her dead body was found days later. 
The autopsy conducted on the body revealed that she had been raped before she was strangled. Despite the police detective's efforts to find the killers, it went cold. The case went cold and went unsolved for several years until a Washington state inmate came forward in 1992, stating that a man named Michael Patrick Ide had confessed to the murder. As it turned out, uh, Michael Ide was already serving a life sentence in prison for the murder of a 68-year-old woman named Ellen Parker, who he raped and killed. DNA evidence linked Michael Ide's blood, hair, and semen together, and he was charged with Lisa Monzo's murder and sentenced to death. Law enforcement uh, concluded that Michael Patrick Ide crossed paths with Lisa Monzo when he was under the overpass drinking alcohol. The next cases uh, some believe are related, others believe that they're not related, but uh, listen and you make up your mind. Uh, between February of 1976 and March of 1977, what was called the Oakland County Child Killer killed at least four young children and spread a contagion of fear throughout the residents of the county. Sadly, the person or persons responsible have never been caught and the murder of all these innocent victims remains unsolved. Now, the first uh, victim is a young boy by the name of Mark Stebbins. Uh, Mark and his brother, Mike, on the morning of February 15, 1976, went to the American Legion Hall in the city of Ferndale in Oakland County, Michigan, and they were playing pool. A little bit after noon, 12-year-old Mark tells his brother he wants to go home and watch TV. Mike decides he wants to stay at the Legion Hall, so Mark sets off alone to walk three blocks between his home and the Legion Hall. Mark never made it home. By 11 p.m., his mother, Ruth Stebbins, she's very worried. She's reported her son missing with the police. Uh, at that time, Mark's description was four foot eight, reddish blonde hair, blue eyes, weighing about 100 pounds. He was wearing blue jeans, a red jumper, and a blue parka that he'd gone out wearing that same morning. Uh, even though a missing child worries the police, they had high hopes they, that nothing had happened to him. Uh, but four days later, that expectation was dashed. Um, what happened was on February 19th, Mark Botengeimer, he's a local businessman, he's walking across a parking lot in Southfield. This is about two miles from Ferndale where Mark Stebbins lived. And the man sees what he thought is a mannequin, but he realizes that what he's looking at is the body of a child. And soon enough, the victim is identified as that of 12-year-old Mark Stebbins. The autopsy found that the cause of death was suffocation, possibly with a pillow. Also, there was evidence that he'd been sexually assaulted. There was discoloration on his ankles and his wrists which indicate that he'd been tied up. Um, but strangely, other than these 
little pieces of evidence on the body, everything else about him was spotless. And what investigators realized was that the killer had bathed Mark and cleaned him up and his clothing before disposing of the body, before leaving it out there in the parking lot. Now, at the time that he was killed, it's hard to make sure uh, if he'd been dead a short time, uh, indicating that the killer had held the, the boy captive for several days before his murder. Uh, the days passed to months, and there was very little progress in the hunt for the killer of Mark Stebbins. Uh, summer months passed, nothing else happened, and uh, many thought that this was a one-time event. Life returned to normal, and that fear uh, that maybe they had a child killer on their hands, which had faded, came back to life very soon on December 22nd, 1976. This is within a 10-month span of the Stebbins murder. Uh, 12-year-old Jill Robinson uh, has a quarrel with her mom. She's a preteen. She's 12 years old. She packs some of her stuff into a rucksack and she leaves the, her family's home. And four days later, a motorist finds her body in Troy, Michigan. Now, the murder of Joe Robinson wasn't immediately assumed to be linked to Mark Stebbins. She died because being, she'd been shot in the face at close range with a shotgun. Uh, she also had not been uh, sexually assaulted, unlike Mark. And uh, the final reason that it was believed that they were not linked was they were of the opposite sex. Uh, thinking at that time was that certain killers had preferences, including the gender of their victims. So they did not believe that they were looking for the same uh, for the same perpetrator. However, there was one significant connection. Jill, just like Mark, was found in the same clothes she was wearing when she vanished. And just like Mark, her body and her clothing had been washed before she was dumped. Um, the theory as to why she was killed with a shotgun is that possibly the perpetrator believed that if he suffocated Jill to death, but placing her body in the ground, the killer realized she was alive. In other words, he was doing the same MO and then he's realizing he didn't quite do it the right way. So here he is with a child that's been assaulted and he just shot her. He panicked and he shot her. Uh, now, the, the gap of time again was 10 months. And unfortunately, the next time there was a murder, they didn't have to wait that long. The next one occurred on January 2nd, 1977. This was just barely a week after Jill Robinson was discovered. Another young girl's reported missing. Her name is Christine Milik. And um, she's 10 years old. And she leaves home and she's going to a convenience store just about two blocks away from her house. And she's gone there just to buy a magazine. Uh, the afternoon comes in, and by 6 p.m., she's not returned home, and her mother goes ahead and reports her missing to the police. Now, the police now are a little bit more wary because 
they had just discovered the murdered body of Joe Robinson. And there's a sense of urgency because of now they're wondering is now they're looking at it. Is there a possible connection now that another girl has gone missing? A cashier serving at the store where Christine has set off to confirm that the girl had indeed been inside the store, purchased the magazine that afternoon. So the police went door to door in that area trying to find some type of witness, but they they couldn't come up with anybody. Uh, they searched for any clues as to where this girl went to, but again, they came up with no results. Uh, they looked at approximately 4,000 sex offenders in the Michigan area, but again, came up with nothing. Then on January 22nd, almost three weeks after she had disappeared, she was found. Uh, her body was found in the snow, just like Mark Stebbins and Jill Robinson. And she was found in Franklin, Michigan, uh, in a ditch on Bruce Lane. Just like the other victims, she was fully clothed. And further examination, again, found that she had been watched, her body and her clothing. And by now, the police are realizing that they might have the same perpetrator on their hands for all three victims. The cause of death is suffocation, just like Mark Stebbins. Um, there was some debate whether she had been sexually assaulted or not. There was no clear evidence of a sexual assault. However, um, there was a note made by an autopsy worker that sperm had been found in the victim's vagina and rectum. This was then dismissed by the state police who stated no sperm was present. After the investigation uh, into these murders, just went nowhere, basically it hit a brick wall. The police had no leads. They had very little in the way of evidence due to the thoroughness of the killer of washing the clothing and the body. And they had no witnesses. Uh, but two months later, that killer would strike again. And the victim was a boy by the name of Timothy King. On March 16, 1977, 11-year-old Timothy leaves his home in Birmingham, Michigan to visit a nearby drugstore to buy sweets. A clerk at the store remembers the boy visiting the store, buying the sweets, and leaving around 8.30 p.m. And like the other children, he never returned home. Uh, his parents wrote a letter pleading for their son's safe return, and the Detroit News printed the letter However, the killer had no compassion for the family. And on March 22nd, six days after he disappeared, uh, the body of Timothy King was found on a dirt road in Livonia, Michigan. Uh, this is the first time that what was dubbed the Oakland County Child Killer went outside of Oakland County. Um, due to Livonia uh, being in Wayne County, this brought their force into the case because this occurred in their jurisdiction. Timothy, like all the previous victims, had been very well taken care of, well fed, cleaned during the days that he was held captive. And his final meal had been Kentucky Fried Chicken, which indicates that the murderer had read the letter written by Timothy's family, which noted that this was his favorite meal. Again, the cause of death for Timothy was suffocation, with the autopsy indicating 
The murder took place hours before his body was discovered. This meant the, mill, the killer was keeping Timothy captive just like the other children. He held him captive for five days, during which time he was sexually assaulted by the killer. Now, at this point, the police start realizing that they they need to put together some type of description, or if not a physical one, at least some type of psychological profile as to who this is. Uh, finally, they, they start putting together a reports from several eyewitnesses that came forward when Timothy was seen speaking to a man driving a blue gremlin in the parking lot of the drugstore he had gone to. And the man was described as stocky built, white male with bushy mutton chops and dark shaggy hair. The psychological profile put together of the Oakland County child killer was released and this is what they described that they should be looking for. A white male, age 25 to 30, compulsion for cleanliness, a professional or a worker children would trust. He resided in Oakland County, a white collar class and above average intelligence. Then after that, after the murder of uh, Timothy King, a Detroit psychiatrist, Dr. Bruce Danto, received a letter from a man saying to have vital information on the case. Now, this person used the pseudonym of Allen, and what he told Dr. Danto was that he was the roommate of the killer. The killer, he named him Frank in the letter, and he said that he was a soldier who had fought in Vietnam. What Allen wrote to Dr. Danto was the following. I tell you what makes him do it. It was Vietnam. We were there together, Frank and me. Oh, Frank is not his real name. I call him that here. Nam screwed up your mind too. Tell you something else. He killed lots of little kids then with medals for it. Burned them to death, bombed them with napalm. It's real beautiful there, Doc. He wants the rich people like people in Birmingham to suffer like all of us suffered to get nothing back for what we did for our country. He's not a monster like you think. He really loves children, especially that little girl for three weeks, not doing it because he hates children, but because he hates everybody else out there. And this be his way to get even and get back at everybody. The writer of the letter said he wanted to help, but only if he was offered immunity. He told uh, Dr. Danto to leave a coded message in the newspaper if he wanted to continue the communication. Um, Dr. Danto placed the message, which read, Weather Bureau says trees to bloom in three weeks. And he soon received a phone call from the man who identified himself as Alan, uh, which police recorded. The so-called Alan agreed to reveal the killer's identity with photographic proof. A meeting was set up between Allen and Dr. Danto at the gas station lounge at 9 p.m. the following evening. The mysterious so-called Allen never showed and was never heard from again. A recording of the phone conversation was played on a local radio station, WXYZ, in the hopes that someone would recognize Allen's voice, but 
nobody did. And his true identity, or that of Frank, if there ever really was a Frank, was never revealed. So at this point, it's never known, was this a true story or was just some playing somebody playing a hoax on the police, on Dr. Danto and the community at large. Um, over $2 million was spent on the investigation and there was a task force of over 150 detectives uh, and they received close to 17,000 tips, but it brought them no nearer to naming who the Oakland County child killer was. By December of 1978, the tax force had been ended and it was put into the hands of the state police. And to this day, the identity of the child killer remains unknown. Now, there have been other murder victims linked to the Oakland County child killer. One of them, her name is Donna Sarah. She's 16 years old. And she had been hitchhiking to the beach uh, after school on September 29, 1972. Now, this is quite a few years before these four children went missing. And um, on October 20th, just five days after her 17th birthday, her body was found in the hometown of Ray Township, Macomb County, just off 27 Mile Road. Uh, she was laying face down in a shallow creek. It appeared that she'd been drugged, held captive for several days before her eventual murder. Her cause of death was strangulation. And uh, there was a new tip received in 1992, but until this day, her murder remains unsolved. Uh, the next one was a girl by the name of Jane Allen. And Jane Allen uh, went missing in 1976. And um, she was last seen, again, hitchhiking uh, between Pontiac, which was where her boyfriend lived, and Royal Oak, which was her home in Oakland County. She was 13. This is on August 8th of 1976. And originally the police weren't concerned because she had a history of running away. Three days later, turns out that what they found was Jane's body floating in a river in Miamisburg, Ohio, about 200 miles away from her home. Her hands had been tied behind her back. Uh, decomposition of the body um, made it an, uh, impossible for the police to determine if she'd been raped. They believed uh, she'd been dead before being thrown into the water and that her death was caused by carbon monoxide poisoning. Uh, police don't believe that the murder of Jane Allen is related to the Oakland County child killer case, but it did happen during the time that it appeared he was active. Uh, the next death was Kimberly King, 12 years old. She's at a friend's house in Warren, Michigan on a sleepover and the date is September 15th, 1979. <clears throat> it's around 11 p.m. She sneaks out of the house. She uses a payphone and she calls her sister. Her sister tells her to get back inside, but she never comes back. She's never seen again. Now, at the beginning, many believe that Kimberly may have run away. However, soon investigation starts pointing in the direction that she was abducted and possibly the victim of foul play. Till this day, her disappearance remains assault. 
Her disappearance has been linked to the Oakland County child killer, but since her remains have never been found, it's never been proved one way or the other. The next child to go missing was Amy Mihaljevic. She's 10 years old, and she went missing from a shopping mall in Bay Village, Ohio. This was on October 27, 1989. In February of 1990, four or five months after her disappearance, her remains were discovered in Ashland County, Ohio. She'd been bludgeoned around the head, stabbed several times. Now, despite that this was different locales and different MOs and the, the gap of time from one to the other, there's still many who do believe that she was murdered by the perpetrator known as the Oakland County Child Killer. The next victims, uh, this occurred in 1976, and there was three teenage girls. They were all murdered in neighboring counties in, uh, in the state of Michigan. Judy Farrow, 16, was murdered in Wayne County. Uh, Cynthia Cadu, 16, was murdered in Macomb County. And finally, Sheila Schrock, who's 14, was murdered in Oakland County. All these victims at times have been mentioned as possible victims of the same perpetrator. The problem is that all these cases had been solved despite many sites saying that they're not solved. And it seems that some have attributed it to certain people, others saying, no, that that's not the right perpetrator. Uh, what happened with Judy Farrow was she was found on January 1st, 1976. Uh, at Lola Valley Park in Redford, she'd been beaten and strangled. The previous evening, she was babysitting for the Laup family. When they got home at 3 a.m., she found she was gone, and the phone had been ripped from the wall. Now, a neighbor, teenage neighbor, uh, named Gary Pervinkler, became a prime suspect. He was 19. It so happens he vanishes from his home around the same time, same evening, and he took a gun and his father's car. Although Judy was a shot, a bullet casing was found inside the Louds' home where she had been babysitting. Gary's body was found on April 7, 1976. He died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The casing found in the Loud home did match the handgun found besides Pervinkler's body. Despite doubts from the Pervinkler family, the case was closed. The next one, which was Cynthia Cadeau, uh, this was just two weeks after the murder of Judy Farrell. Cynthia is 16 years old, and she's abducted from the roadside on January 14, 1976. Her body, her nude body is found early the next morning. She was tied up, raped, and then beaten to death. Now, her murder is often linked to the Oakland County child killer and considered an unsolved case. However, in 1979, Robert Anglin and Raymond Heinrich were convicted of the murder. An unknown or unnamed third man was also involved, but he died before the arrest and police refused to release his identity. Both men were sentenced to life in prison. The next murder which was Sheila Schrock. Sheila's 14 years old. She's murdered five days after Cynthia Cadu in Birmingham. Well, Cynthia's murdered in Birmingham. Sheila's 
murdered in Oakland County, neighboring county. She had also been babysitting her niece for her older sister. When someone came into the home, she was beaten, raped, and then shot. Neighbors witnessed the killer leaving the scene and reported one of the victims who saw the entire attack while he was shoveling snow on his roof. It would take police two years to find the man responsible. In January of 1979, Oliver Rhodes Andrews confessed and was convicted for the murder of Sheila Srock. Um, it's unknown why there's a connection between her her murder and that of the Oakland County child killer. Now, there's several suspects in all of this, but again, obviously, since he's never been identified, that's all they are, suspects. Uh, first one is a man by the name of David Norberg. In 1999, law enforcement decided to exhume Norberg's body. Uh, they started to suspect him. He was an auto worker after his death from a car accident. This was back in 1981. After his death, his wife is going through his belongings and she comes across several items. These include a silver cross inscribed with the name Christine, a cross similar to the one owned by Christine Millich. Another item was a St. Christopher medal. Timothy King had worn such an item but it wasn't found with his body. Now, David Norberg's wife tells of how her husband would tie her up, which led to David Norberg being strongly suspected in the murder of Jane Allen. Uh, the wife told uh, he would rip bits of clothes from a t-shirt, knot them together to make a rope, which he would then use to tie her. This is the same method that was used on Jane Allen who was found with her hands tied behind her back. Police also suspected him in the disappearance of Kimberly King. When she disappeared, Norberg lived just two streets away, and right after her disappearance, Norberg left the area. However, the authorities didn't get a breakthrough, at least not the one they were hoping for. Uh, when they compared a hair found on Timothy King to Norberg's, there was no DNA match. And... Uh, the investigators refused to rule Norberg out completely as it couldn't be certain the hair belonged to Timothy's killer. Even if David Norberg wasn't the killer of all these children, he's still believed to be a prime suspect in the murder of Jane Allen and the disappearance of Kimberly King. Uh, another suspect is named Ted Lapergine. In 2005, he was being questioned about an unrelated murder of about a prisoner named Richard Lawson and gave the police the name of the man he believed to be the Oakland County child killer, Ted Lapergine. Richard Lawson admitted to the police that he was part of a group of pedophiles operating in Detroit's Cass Quarter in the 1970s. Among his fellow associate pedophiles were two wealthy men named Bob Moore and Ted Lambergine who Lawson knew as Ted Orr. Labergine and Moore would entice and groom young boys from the financially deprived area with food, money, and then would go on to abuse them at Moore's bike shop or at nearby motels. Uh, Richard Lawson 
told the officer interviewing him that Lamborghini uh, would also on certain occasions go out and pick up young boys from wealthier areas such as Birmingham and Royal Oak. The group would also participate in pedophile sex orgies where guests would bring a child to be shared around. Now, according to Lawson, on one occasion, Ted Lamborghini shows them a photo album owned by Bob Moore. The album contains images of various young boys that had been abused. In one particular photo, Lamborghini turns to Lawson and told him that child looked like the king boy and gave Lawson a wink. The investigating officer goes ahead and decides to investigate the claims. They find out that Bob Moore was already dead. He had died of a cardiac arrest. And ironically, he had uh, died in his home and his uh, pit bulls feasted on his remains. However, Ted Lamborghini was alive. He's arrested, and to the surprise of the officers, he confesses to much of what Richard Lawson had told him in the interview. However, despite his confession that he's saying he's a pedophile, he denies he was also a murderer. He agrees to take a lie detector test to prove his innocence. Now, police had been here before, so they again expected another subject to pass the polygraph. This time, they find out that Lamborghini fails the test, and this was the first to do so in over 300 tests conducted in relation to the Oakland County child killer case. Unfortunately, there was nothing really to link Lamborghini to the murders. Um, about a dozen living victims did testify against him for sexual abuse against children, and he was sentenced to life from prison. Uh, he was offered a plea bargain for information about the Oakland County child killer case. The police were probably thinking that they had run in the same circles of pedophilia and one of his group mates went beyond just abusing children to actually killing them. Uh, now, since he went to jail, rumors have persisted that he has confessed to other prisoners that he abused all the known victims, but that he was not the one responsible for the murders themselves. And uh, he's refused to help with the investigation any further. In 2007, the family of Mark Stebbins filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Lamborghini for $25,000. Now, this attorney representing the family, uh, you know, was very clear that the claim was never about money, but instead they were trying to get new information from Lamborghini. However, the case was dismissed in 2008. Uh, next suspect is a man by the name of Christopher Bush. Uh, and basically, he became a suspect by sheer chance in 2006. The King family got a call from a polygraph examiner in California who used to be a former friend and neighbor of Timothy King named Patrick Coffey. Coffey tells him he'd recently attended a conference where he was involved in a revealing conversation. Patrick Coffey, Lawrence Wasser, who's another attendee at the, at the conference, informs him that 30 years before, he was asked to conduct a polygraph test arranged by an attorney on her own client. 
the unnamed client had apparently confessed to being the Oakland County child killer. Wasser later denies the details of this conversation ever having taken place. And um, later on, Coffey later gave testimony under oath. However, Wasser failed to do so. Now, the King family contacted investigators regarding this new information. Um, months went by and finally get a call from an investigator who asked the family had known anyone with the last name Bush. Now, the family researches and finds out that a known pedophile who had previously been a suspect back in 1977, his name was Christopher Bush. And it turns out he's the son of a high-level executive working for General Motors. He was also known to have repeatedly been arrested for sexual encounters with children. In 1977, uh, Christopher Bush's friend named Gregory Green was arrested. During questioning, Green tells police that he and Bush often fantasize about abducting a young boy and keeping them captive. Green then tells the police that Christopher Bush had murdered Mark Stebbins. Christopher Bush and another associate, Douglas Bennett, were arrested on multiple charges of sexual contact with minors. While Bennett admitted to child molestation, he, again, he denies any involvement with the activities of Green and Bush. In other words, they're all sickos. They're all pedophiles. But they say, I'm a pedophile, but I haven't killed anybody. And they point the finger at uh, someone in the group. Now, Gregory Green and Christopher Bush, uh, they're interviewed by Michigan State Police. And they both take a polygraph test relating to the cases in Oakland County, the, the children that were killed. Both men passed, and so they're clear of involvement. And um, this was back in January 28th of 1977, two months uh, before Timothy King, who's the final victim, is murdered. Now, Gregory Green, he gets sentenced to life for multiple counts of sexual abuse against children. Christopher Bush, even though he abused the same child as Green. Somehow he's get he's able to get the charges reduced to molesting boys and is given probation. Remember, he's comes from a wealthy family who's got connections, so maybe they pulled some strings for him. Almost two years go by, and Christopher Bush seems to take his own life on November 20th, 1978. According to his family, he killed himself following depression, resulting from legal troubles. However, questions have been raised about his death. His room supposedly had no signs of blood splatter. No gunshot residue was found on Bush. Four shell casings were also located in the room. Now, there, there's been some speculation that Christopher Bush didn't take his life. What many believe is that he was murdered. And the theory is that the murder was committed by more than one individual because Bush was about to confess, so they needed to shut him up. There's no evidence of this existing. This is just a theory that has been posited by those uh, around the case, considering some of the contradictory evidence around his supposed suicide. 
Now, <clears throat> two other um, things of interest that were also present in the room was that um, a bloodstained ligature was found. And another thing was a hand-drawn picture of a child seemingly screaming in agony. The boy in the picture closely resembles the first victim, Mark Stebbins. Now, once Christopher Bush dies, uh, no, more, no, no more murders were committed by the so-called Oakland County child killer. It's also interesting that the investigators, the task force looking into the murders was terminated on December 15, 1978, less than a month after the death of Christopher Bush. The next suspect is a man by the name of James Vincent Gunnels. And in 2009, a new task force is looking into the murders and they get a DNA profile from hairs found on the body of the first victim, Mark Stebbins, and from the final victim, Timothy King. Other hair samples are taken from uh, hair found on Christy Millich. And uh, this evidence now points to new suspects. The first is James Vincent Gunnels. In 1977, he's known to have kept company with two other possible suspects in the case. Christopher Bush and Gregory Green, who had already both been questioned about the killings at that time. Gunnels himself is only 15 when these murders occurred, and he himself is a victim of sexual abuse at the hands of Bush and Green. Now, the evidence which linked James Gunnels to the Oakland County child case was that the hair found on Christine Millich uh, the evidence was only mitochondrial DNA, uh, a match as opposed to a uh, nuclear DNA match. However, it's considered uh, very interesting because there is some type of connection. Now, when Gunnels is questioned about this new evidence, by this time he's now 47, he denies even knowing the victim, and he cannot explain how his DNA was found on the girl's body. Then in November of 2012, Barry King, Timothy King's dad, uh, he sent details of a polygraph taken by James Gunnels on July, in July of 2009 after a Freedom of Information request, a FOIA request. Now in the test, Gunnels is asked three questions relating to the DNA found on Christine Millich. He's asked if he participated in her killing if he knew for certain who killed her, and if he had any physical contact with the victim. Gunnels, in his own words, or in the words of the examiner, completely failed the test. Now, Gunnels was in charge in relation to the uh, Oakland County child killer case, and for some unknown reason, he's no longer considered a suspect by police. Uh, he still continues to state that he's innocent in relation to the case. And those who believe his involvement um, lean more towards the theory that he was possibly an accomplice or witness versus being the killer himself. Another suspect is a man named Arch Sloan. And he's the second suspect that the police looked at based on the new DNA evidence. He is a 
convicted pedophile, and the hair samples found in the clothing of victims Mark Stebbins and Timothy King were matched to further hair samples taken from a 1966 Pontiac Bonneville that belonged to Art Sloan. Now, Sloan has a long history of deviant sexual behavior towards children, and he was serving a lifetime prison term when the new evidence was discovered. In October of 1983, a workmate of Sloan's allowed his 10-year-old son to spend the night with Sloan, believing that they would be going fishing early the next morning. During the stay, Sloan sexually abused and raped the young boy. And in 85, he, Sloan was convicted for this crime. Now, he had previously been a suspect at the time of the murders. During the investigation by the police, he allowed officers to inspect the 1966 Pontiac, which resulted in the hair sample being collected and stored. Now, there was, even though there is a DNA match to the hair found in his car, testing revealed that it was not a match for Arch Sloan. Despite this, the police still strongly believe that he was involved or at least knew the person or persons that were. Uh, Arch Sloan is offered a deal for his cooperation with the investigation, which includes his release from prison. And what does he do? He turns down the request. Almost 10 years later, the identity of any person related to the hair found in his Pontiac remains unknown. Uh, in 2019, the Discovery Channel uh, released a documentary titled Children of the Snow, and um, it talks about new information that was revealed by Art Sloan to uh, investigator Heather Catalo, um, who had been covering the case for about 16 years. And she states that Sloan took a polygraph test during his questioning sometime between 2010 and 2012. And Art Sloan, like Vince Connell, Ted Lamborghini, failed the lie detector uh, administered by the task force, which leads one to believe, was this a gang of pedophiles who were abducting and killing these children? And that's why there's contradictory evidence found at some of the scenes or were they just witness and there was one killer? As of this date, the case still remains unsolved.